welcome to Aetherius Radio Live, the hour of truth with Richard Lawrence and Christy Blaze. Well, a warm welcome to Aetherius Radio Live, brought to you on Body, Mind, Spirit Radio on every third Tuesday of the month. Discover the cosmic message of this age revealed through Master of Yoga, Dr. George King, between 1954 and 1997. Today, your host, Chrissy Blaze, will be joined by her husband, Gary, also a very close student of Dr. George King, as well as being an experienced healer, international teacher, and practitioner of the spiritual sciences. And they will be discussing Memories of Our Master. So without further ado, I hand you over to Chrissy and Gary. Thank you, Noemi. Thank you very much for producing the show today. This is Noemi Bates, who's been producing the show in the past. Uh, this is Chrissy Blaze, and I'm hosting today, as you said. And the guest is my husband, Gary Blaze. So as you say, Noemi, we're going to be talking about some of his memories of the Master leading up to uh, Dr. King's birthday, which we celebrate every year on January the 23rd. But today, Gary is going to focus on the personal side of our master, which is important for all of us to do, whether we met him or not. Uh, when I was working on commemoration services, and I still do, in London, I had to get our master's approval when he was there because he was very, very hands-on with everything. And I remember he told me to make sure the attenders understood that the cosmic masters are living, breathing, feeling intelligences, not remote in any way. And it's the same with our master. And Gary will share not just some of the memories of time spent, but shine a light on some of the different facets of our master and share moments that were teachings, not just for him, but for all of us. Gary's been a staff member for many years. Uh, he was 20 years at the American headquarters, where Dr. King spent most of his time visiting the European headquarters for around three months over the summer months for some years. And he, Gary, like other staff, worked with Dr. King on different projects. He also ate at his table for lunches and dinners over many years. He helped give him healing, was his main photographer for a number of years and many other duties. So over to you, Gary, to share your thoughts about our master. Thank you, Noemi, and uh, thank you, Chrissy. Fancy meeting you here. Thank you for the introduction, yeah. but it puts, a, puts some pressure on me about what I'm going to say, so I hope it sort of lives up to, to the buildup. Um, I do want to start with uh, some words I put down about my feelings uh, about the master before we get into things, specific things. And we have to understand that all of us view the world and our experiences with the master in, in any way that we've had that uh, through the filters of our own uh, life and experiences. So please keep that in mind during the course of the show. There are times in our lives when a person, perhaps not so remarkable in him or herself, meets some extraordinary person or event that infuses their life with great meaning and purpose that changes the course of their whole life. For Chrissy and I, and so many others, our own lives have been blessed with such an encounter when we met our master. And this, it didn't happen, whether this meeting happened through the written or spoken word or in person. But we all do know that this meeting changed our lives for the better. The master that we know as George King was unique. And to those listening who knew him personally, 
you also know how absolutely true that statement is. He was a man whose life and teachings could not be separated from each other. He gave his message through the life that he lived. He was someone who was absolutely consistent, absolutely sure, and absolutely truthful, rare in an age marked with inconsistencies and untruthfulness. He stood sometimes alone with great courage and resiliency as an apostle of truth and a living example of all of our own possibilities. He is indeed our spiritual master and our greatest friend, which if we think about it, even to say those words, is it's just mind-boggling, amazing that uh, we've had, all of us uh, have had this opportunity. And in some way, I believe that he wanted, uh, I would actually say that he wants nothing but the very best for us. He wants to see every single person become what they truly are, a living manifestation of divine spirit. And I believe in some way he feels anguish and disappointment at her failings, but also joy, happiness, and maybe even a little pride in our spiritual successes. The master said many times he didn't want people to be merely good in the next life. He wanted us to be great, to become at, to take this path to the stars. We all thank you, Master, for giving our lives an enhanced meaning and purpose, as well as giving us tremendous opportunities to be of spiritual service in ways that we never would have thought possible and never truly deserved. Thank you, Gary. So let's begin at the beginning of your spiritual journey. How did you first meet our master? This is always a fascinating question I like to ask people. Well, Christy, it was um, early November 1974. Uh, Dr. King, his wife Monique, and Charles Abramson uh, brought an Operation Prayer Power to Detroit. If you can believe it, they managed to get it on his carry-on luggage. Uh, the time that Dr. King spent here. He was deeply into promotion, TV, radio. But basically, sort of the main thrust of him coming was to promote Operation Prayer Power. And he did a, a lecture, a public lecture, with 185 people came. And then the next day, there was an actual Operation Prayer Power session where 130 came to Operation Prayer Power the next day. It was a great start. But sad to say, we've never uh, managed to approach in the ensuing years. But getting back to that, I was part of a team which picked uh, the arriving team up at the airport. I had been doing some gardening work on the property. I was a new guy. I'd only been a member for six months. So I had my gardening clothes on and digging away and whatever. And one of the people who was expected to join the team uh, wasn't able to do it. So the organizer, lovely lady, Edna Spencer, said, you need to come. And at the airport, I honestly really didn't know what to expect you know, being so young and new and feeling a bit grubby in my clothes. Uh, but the first sight in the distance in the arrival area was, as he's coming through the, uh, the tunnel, was a seemingly ordinary man in an overcoat and hat. But the longer I watched him and the closer he got, my perception changed dramatically. It was amazing in, in some way. And, and uh, he seemed to gain a power and presence that seemed at least in my mind, to radiate around him. 
and I never understood why the rest of the people in the arrival area didn't see or feel anything beyond the ordinary. Uh, during his time in Michigan, Detroit, I was fortunate to act as his assistant and help him in a number of ways during the visit. And the overriding impression I got, besides being the master, was that he was incredibly patient, incredibly kind with a young new guy, a young new guy. And it really sort of my time around him then, I believe, really set in motion the, the heartfelt desire that he was who I want to follow and want to help in any way possible. So, Gary, I know you were in Los Angeles for 30 years. You're there in Detroit and you're back now in Detroit. So how did that happen, that move to the American headquarters? Well, Chrissy, um, quite honestly, I, I never thought about leaving the Detroit branch, which is, if I'm looking back on it, it was maybe a bit limiting, but it was my home. It's where I grew up, and uh, I didn't feel that my uh, skill level or what I can offer would, would be appreciated anywhere outside the branch. But it was early 1976, and while reading the booklet, Great White Brotherhood Accepts Initiates, I read and reread multiple times the following guidance given by Dr. King. And he said, in future, do not wait to be asked, as many of you have done in the past on numerous occasions, but offer your assistance and thereby invoke the karmic law on your behalf as well as take advantage of the even greater opportunities which you now have to help yourself. And I kept reading that, and, and part of me thought, well, maybe that really doesn't apply to me, but a greater part of myself said, sit down and do some practices. So I did some practices, and I came out of the practice and wrote a letter to Dr. King offering to him, offering up to unconditionally help him and the Ethereum Society in any way needed. And I never expected any kind of response. I thought it was a, I genuinely meant it. I thought it was a nice thing to do. But one day coming home from the branch, there was a letter in a package for me from Los Angeles. And I opened the letter and it's from the master. And to paraphrase it right from the beginning or to minimize it, right from, almost right from the beginning, he called me out. He said, and I quote, if you mean what you say, then move to Los Angeles and continue your staff training here as part of my staff. And what could I think about that besides the pressure was on, but the opportunity laid before me. But he also, to seal the deal, the master also included the want ad section from the Sunday Los Angeles Times. And at that time, the want ad section, the classifieds in the big newspapers was the only real place you went to for jobs. And there was nothing social on or online, obviously, at that time. And the want ads in the L.A. Times were thick. And he laid it all out for me. He came back to me and said, move to L.A., send me the classifieds so I can search for a job. And a few months later, I left my home. And after a cross-country drive, I arrived in Los Angeles. The master was in Lake Powell when I arrived, but shortly after his return, he gave me and another staff visitor from England a tour of the property. I was shy, quiet, if some people can believe the quiet part, but I was shy, quiet, and absolutely in awe being in his presence as he went around showing myself and another staff member the property. And I never said much at all, thinking, 
I'm just the new guy. And I also had read so much of the current staff in the newsletters over the years. And now they also have come to life before me. Later that afternoon, it's interesting, the master one of the experienced staff members have a talk with me. And he said, be, you know, he didn't say the master was unhappy, but he just wanted the master to ask him to offer me some guidance. And he said to be genuinely enthusiastic, take an interest in things, ask questions, show appreciation and what, of what I was shown and put everything you have into life and experience and then act like you're alive. And that advice changed my life. Yeah, fantastic advice for all of us. Our master was such a giver himself. He wanted us all to give all we could to life, to our work, to, our, uh, to be enthusiastic. And he always continued to give and give and give. Actually, he gave too much which cost him a lot personally. But he wanted us Absolutely. to Absolutely. I think it's important to bring up the fact, too, that just because the, the master is no longer physically here with us, but the guidance he gave about offering up is still as valid today as it ever has been. And anyone who's reading that or maybe listening to that, uh, if we aren't in a position to physically help in a headquarters or branch or group, think about other ways to serve. Financially is one way. If distance is a problem, think about ways you can help, even remotely, to become a greater spiritually active cell within the group soul of our living church. Look at what skills and abilities are needed, then try and learn them. What feelings that we hold in our minds and hearts that accompany our spiritual action is important. Offer our prayers, our 12 blessings, our healing, our karma yoga upwards to the master, the master's or to God, and give them a greater karmic power. That's so true, Gary. Perhaps you'd like to um, talk about our master, some of the times when he was giving us wisdom and how that affected him from your perspective. Well, you know, Chris, as we know, we've been told the greatest gift that someone can give someone is uh, spiritual wisdom. And by extension, the greatest gift that someone can give is spiritual wisdom. And we understand how these everlasting, undeniable spiritual truths can change our consciousness and have a profound positive effect in this and future lives. But another way, and I think it's important of looking at this, is that the giver of that spiritual wisdom often loses something themselves. Dr. King described it this way, as long as we hold wisdom within us, locked within the vault of our mind, it can begin to grow, offer deductions, other deductions can happen from it. The longer we hold on to it, the more powerful it can become for us personally. But when we give the wisdom to others, the vault within the mind is open, and it's like throwing flour into a strong wind, and it's gone. The uh, One example, if I can briefly talk about that, was I believe it, I'm not sure the the it may have been on an Easter Sunday many years ago when the Master gave an address in which he revealed the, the true first name of the Master, Jesus. And normally after the, the service, he was in his bungalow just sipping his tea, quiet, very self-contained. Normally he was a little bit more animated and we would comment on his address, but he just didn't want that. Coming to lunch, he sat down, walked in, head was a bit bowed. He sat down very quiet, pensive, looking out through the window, lost in his own thoughts. And the lunch table was very quiet. Jeez, what seemed to be for a long time. Until he spoke and revealed how much of a personal loss he felt by revealing this name, 
the true name of the Master Jesus, something very sacred and personal to him. And he knew that no matter what anyone said, their appreciation would never equal his because of his experience with the Master Jesus in many ways and would never make up for the loss of what he gave them. And um, that's certainly a a very profound and uh, real example of uh, losing something spiritual power when giving it to others. I think it's good to remember that, that he gave so very much and what it cost to him. I mean, thanks for bringing that up, Gary. I remember when our master first gave that name in London and it definitely felt like an initiation. It was very moving, actually. So just to to change the... uh, (laughs) So much to talk about, I know, but Gary, one thing I know is that you are very involved with the missions, and especially in one aspect, uh, connected with crystal work. And I'm sure people would be interested to know more about that. Well, the um, the way I got involved with it was sort of interesting. I received a call from Santa Barbara saying that our master, who was obviously there, uh, wanted to see me the next day. Uh, I didn't know why. I didn't question why. Uh, It could have been for a number of reasons. The, The day later, I drove there and went, the park went in the front door where a master was seated having a cup of tea. I was invited to have a seat. A fellow staff member and great friend of mine, Rich Casada, was also there. After a short, pleasant chat, the master brought up the possibility of me working on an essential part of some current and future mission equipment, the crystal. I was a bit taken back. He got up and walked around the room and then stood in front of me, eyeballed me, and asked, what do you feel? Can you do it? And here's the thing, and I did reply. I said, Master, if you asked me if I can tune the phantom engines, which I should be able to do by now, I would say no. I feel I, I'm without a doubt that I could be successful working on the crystal. And he stood there and he said, good, let's get to work. So that was sort of like the catalyst um, you know, the response was really important because the master didn't like, he liked measured greatness, uh, a sense of can-do surety, no awful, but he didn't like empty words or vapid superlatives. If you said something, you better mean it. And if you're going to do something, you better do it. I became full-time for two or three years to start the project, initially with Richard Casada, and after time, I continued on my own. Operation Brayer Power, Saturn Mission Batteries, Operation Sunbeam Pan Bland, Plan, say that fast five times, Plan B, Plan K, OPP remote. It's interesting, the laboratory equipment was moved to Michigan a number of years ago where I prepared the crystal for four additional batteries. So it it was an an interesting time. But the thing I want to bring out about that, the time with the master, his approach, people may think he was a master. He he had this down pat. He put things in motion, and he sat back, arm across his chest, and didn't worry. But he worried. He worried. Sometimes in the in the laboratory and cleaning room, he paced up and down, worried about aspects of the mission. He approved everything, every bit of crystal that certainly that I did. He viewed parts on of different different finished crystal through a high powered microscope. And then also used another type of a large viewing screen and he would write approved GK on the label and put it on the appropriate containers. Uh, one example is that and I'm not giving anything away, I just a, a rough sort of a uh, non-real example, if you imagine a project with uh, 15 pounds of solid crystal reduced to what can only be correctly viewed through a microscope, polished, and look free of dust, 
And undoubtedly, I look back on the day in Santa Barbara, and I thank the master still to this day for looking at me the way he did, for trusting me and giving giving me this tremendous opportunity. Well, that's so interesting, Gary. I found through my years in the Ethereum Society that if you have a talent, even though you don't really know you have it, and you're willing to do whatever it takes, then somehow the society draws that talent out of you. You just have to have that approach that you had and others have that you want to do anything you can. So that's very, very interesting. And I know the crystal work you did led to some other important experiences I think you had that perhaps one of them particularly was quite fascinating that perhaps you could... Well, thank you very much. This is uh, very interesting, I think. Well, it was was May May of 1933. See where I am? Uh, Time machine. May of 1993, Mars Sector 4, who was in charge of all special operations on satellite number three, made an application to scan Saturn mission battery A1. Had to get permission from people like the Lords of Karma, Lords of Saturn, Nixie 005, and our master. So what we did, we set up the clean room, the workshop, uh, as we had it when we were working on the battery for the uh, Saturn mission, which we termed A1. We saw the master walking across the parking lot into the door of the clean room, so we assumed things were starting. And uh, the master apparently then had a conversation uh, with Mars Sector 3 and Mars Sector 4 and um, explained many different things to him. And when he scanned the actual battery, A1, he responded, how did you get the crystal so perfect? And as I was saying, the it's really just mind-boggling because compared to Mars Sector 4 and the technology that he's familiar with and satellite number 3, uh, the sort of archaic prehistoric setup we had in the, our laboratory slash clean room uh, uh, was just, incredible that probably to him that we could produce anything but the most of our equipment was purchased in 1974 1975 maybe something in 1976 it was amazing and uh, really wonderful for him uh, to say that for all of us who had worked on the uh, on the crystal um the master told us that the mars sector 4 wanted to scan us the people involved with the project uh, individually so he had us stand outside the door in a line there's Richard Medway, who worked on the uh, other Im- important components for the battery, myself, uh, who worked on the crystal, and Brian Kniep, who wasn't involved in any way with the manufacturing. But he did help the master a number of times while he was in the clean room with mission-related support. So it was Richard Medway, myself, and Brian. The master had us line up there, and he said, this is what sort of freaked me out, he said, you will not see him, but he will see you. In a minute, he will know all about you. And the master put his hand individually on our shoulders and said a few words about us, as apparently Mars Sector 4 was scanning us. Knowing all about us? Jeez. Um, Now, the thing that it was a wonderful experience, uh, because we certainly had a, a great reaction to that afterwards after the initial psychological shock but the thing that the point that i want to bring out about that is that the the master spent most of his life amongst ordinary people immersed in the noise and clutter of humanity and i would have thought in a good way that he would have 
relished or moved over even standing near the area where uh, Mars Sector 3, Mars Sector 4 was uh, and able to be sort of to have a little time with one of his peers, to be aligned uh, with one of his peers. But the thing was the master stayed in line behind us, with us, and it just illustrated to myself and others how loyal, how in spite of us being scanned and someone knows every detail about us, the master never flinched in his support for his, in this case, his men. And um, he was just incredible. And uh, even, even that showed in certain ways what a fantastic friend and master and supporter he was for us and everyone in the Ethereum Society. And I do want to point out something very quickly about that. The master uh, wanted the crystal work and the manufacturing work kept separate. So neither one of the groups knew the full details of what the other one did. He had gotten an intelligence tip from cosmic sources saying that he needed to protect the integrity of the uh, the radionic equipment in this way. So that was sort of an interesting take on it as well. Well, thank you for sharing that, Gary. It's certainly very moving <laughs> indeed. And as we know, our master, he, he is still there for us, just as he always was. And, um, you know, it's, it's very moving. So thank you. But let's change the page Thank again. You. As well as being a primary terrestrial mental channel, which he was, uh, the inventor of cosmic missions, and many other things, our master was also so interested in us as far as our spiritual development was concerned. Uh, he was, when you listen to the, the classes that he took from the early days, you realize how patient he was, extremely patient at our slow spiritual progress. Um, Gary, is there anything, I know you've had some experiences in that, respect, in that respect as well that perhaps you'd like to share today. Well, Christy, a lot of, many of what I say is uh, certainly not unique to me as, uh, you know, there are a number of people that I had many different and extremely interesting and powerful experiences with the master. So uh, just from my perspective is that shortly after I got to Los Angeles, um, since I was in the letter writing mode, I guess, I wrote Dr. King a letter asking to be initiated into the, the mudra that was used in services and during mantra. And I framed it so my practices and participation during services would be more effective. Surprisingly, he called me over to his office and um, was very happy to do it. And the first thing he gave me was a the mantra, uh, which turned out to be uh, a protective mantra that people were initiating to uh, even prior to me and certainly subsequently to that. Uh, he gave me that mantra right off the bat, but then he also gave me the mudra. But what struck me about giving me the mudra is that he had the most amazing fingers they weren't skinny they weren't saggy they weren't fat and weird looking but they seemed to be they were alive they had a certain thickness to them but they seemed to be alive uh that almost like they were infused with prana uh, possibly if you think about the number of times that he used mudras or hand signs to project uh, spiritual power 
over the course of his life, you know what? You can probably guess that his fingers were just infused and were completely, in some respects, otherworldly looking. Um, he um, showed me the mudra, and I wanted to be careful that I got it right, so I, I questioned him a couple times. He was very patient, and then he lifted his hand up with the mudra, and he showed me from different angles, and he looked at me and said, that's as good as it's going to get. And that was my uh, uh, sort of exit sign. But, uh, you know, that was really fantastic. Um, you know, another time he corrected me how to do the bellows properly and something related to the AUM. Um, but one one interesting thing is one day when I was full-time and I was making $100 a month, um, plus room and board, I was eating lunch and dinner at the property, and I had a small bedroom on the property, I had a rare day off. My car wasn't usable. I had really no money, so I spent a couple hours in the morning washing and waxing a staff member's vehicle, which they would be like an SUV. Uh, so I decided to spend most of the, the rest of the day in spiritual practices. I went into my bedroom and took, uh, uh, spent my day in practices, which probably amounted to six, seven hours, not continuous, but fairly continuous, with short breaks, and one of my jobs was to, working uh, on the property, living on the property, was to do the lockup at night. And uh, uh, I got an early start on doing the lockup, which also um, closing the shutters. Anyone who's been to Los Angeles, you've seen the shutters on the, the master's bungalow. And part of my job was closing the shutters on our master's bungalow. And I did it a little earlier than normal, and I was closing them, and I heard felt someone walking across the parking lot. And I turned and I saw the master coming across the parking lot. And uh, for a moment, you know, looking normal, but then for a moment, he all of a sudden changed. He looked much younger, much more vital, much stronger, much like uh, uh, incredible, don't mess with me, spiritual giant, I best way of describing it. Um, and that lasted a couple seconds. And then as it got closer, he became, uh, the vision faded, and he became normal with a, with, with a wry smile on his face. He said, see what happens when you spend your day in spiritual practice. And continued walking by through his gate and into his bungalow. <laughs> wow, that's amazing. Thanks for sharing that, Gary. Certainly. Um, I know you've also had other experiences with your spiritual practices, and there was one I think it was kind of a, a bad or a difficult experience that Amartya helped you with. Is that right? Yeah, it was actually my my doing, um, my fault. Um, Alan and I lived <clears throat> together in separate bedrooms in the third bungalow. Uh, people know the LA property, and we were sort of like yoga buddies. And uh, we did all the yoga shatkamas, the purification practices, and we really got into things together. And um, one day, um, I did a kundalini yoga practice, which, you know, I shouldn't have done. Um, But as I did it, it triggered something. And I think I had a uh, sort of a partial rise of kundalini that didn't go up through the susumna, the center of the spine, but possibly went off to the side. And it caused me a violent shaking, 
uh, I couldn't control myself, and I fell forward on my bed, and I was shaking, but I could still hear people out in the hallway talking. But then it came to me to do the sipping, cooling pranayama, and I did that two or three times, and the shaking slowed down and eventually stopped. Um, I was scheduled to go to Santa Barbara that day. Um, I parked in the street, began to walk up the driveway, and our master came out. He didn't always come out, and uh, but this time he did. He came out the front door, and as I started walking up the driveway, something told me, stop. And he continued walking, and he walked slowly around me clockwise three times. And then as he walked away, he turned around to me and said, never do that again. Um, I still have the book with the practices in it. And at times I think, well, it's been a number of years. Maybe I should go back to it. But uh, out of respect and common sense, and if you're going to learn something, learn a lesson, Gary. I've never gone back to those practices ever again. But uh, it just showed that somehow he was in tune in some way that I don't know. Uh, with went on in L.A. when I got up to Santa Barbara. Wow, that, that was amazing. <laughs> Definitely. Very, very interesting indeed. Yes, it does illustrate how much the Master is aware of what people are doing and is interested in what people are doing, and I believe he still is. But then, I don't know that, but, you know, it's just um, a fantastic story. Thank you. Our Master... You know, because he's so done so many different aspects, when you look at the society, um, we, it, it's good to remember that he was also a, a yogi. He was a, very, very interested in, in our spiritual development, as we said. And he did a number of things in the society to help the members spiritually, such as bless, he did a, a massive blessing of all the members in the UK and the USA at a certain time and um, many other things. Uh, he blessed holy shapes for us individually, which you know took an awful lot of his time and his energy. And there's also one experience that you had, Gary, regarding the Holy Cross that I think you'd like to share. Well, Chrissy, just to, to, to add on to what you say, you know, it's all, all of his writings, all his teachings in audio format, the, the spiritual practices that... Um, he talked to uh, the staff and how they turned into uh, our, our King Yoga book. And uh, so it's just extraordinarily extraordinary. I never thought, and I used to lay in the grass when I should have been cutting the lawn when I was younger, lay in the grass looking at the clouds thinking, after reading the autobiography of a yogi, thinking I'd love to meet someone and that guy just beyond me that uh, it turned out to, to happen. But the, the thing that you're talking about is that the, the master, um, people in L.A. have made a holy cross um, to sort of be like the one that Saint was charged through the master by St. Peter many, many, many years ago. Uh, it was a smallish, not it was a lot bigger than the original one, but with the, the holy shape on the top. And uh, on December 25th, 1989, I think it was, uh, the master had 
everyone out of the temple, and a lot of people were walking around outside, chanting outside of the temple on the street, sidewalk, chanting mantra. And he was in there alone. And uh, St. Peter came through and charged this additional Holy Cross as well. And the master called me in to take a photo. And I approached, and it was scary. It wouldn't, you know, maybe not be the right way to describe it, but the ambiance and the the look of the master, and it was just, the room was just alive. And as I was approaching to get close enough to take the photo that did appear in, in uh, a cosmic voice, um, he, the master was just so powerful, so radiant. And it was, he, I've never, ever, ever seen him that spiritually powerful in that same way uh, before or after. And I took the photo and I felt obviously like an intruder and backed out slowly and then gradually turned around and walked out briskly. Subsequently, at another time, the master had talked about how the adepts, and specifically he mentioned adept number three, who when the adepts may have had the rare time when they've had a very enlightening and positive and spiritually amazing experience, and even times when they've spent the time in the lower astros, you have to imagine, especially in the, 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 the greatness, the great times, which were far too uh, far between for these wonderful warriors of light, um, how they would react. And, you know, we've seen the master, you know, in, in London, or I don't know in London, but certainly in Santa Barbara, he'd take a transmission and might have some healing, might have some oxygen and come walk down the hall, sit down and have some tea and be with people. Or in L.A., do the same mm. thing sit down and have some tea and then uh, probably a short time later get on the intercom or the beeper and call some people over and put them to work. Uh, it was business mm-hmm. as normal. He just moved seamlessly from, seemingly seamlessly from one of these states to the other. And he mentioned something about Adam number three. If you can imagine Adam number three with his power and strength and his vitality, he said, and I hope I have this correctly, uh, that when Adam number three found it hard to come back to normal and his disciples would put him into an enclosed uh, area somewhat like a cave and hold block them in there under Adam number three's instructions until he was able to come back, to come down, somehow get back to normalness, if you can call it that, and be even among his disciples. And it showed how uh, extraordinary our master was that he he just seamlessly, probably to his detriment, walked back and immersed himself in the AS. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's really, really good to think about those things. the tremendous responsibility he held um, and the tremendous strain. And yet he always just carried on and, you know, it's unbelievable. But another thing I think we need to focus on today that 
you know, we know our master's mission was a world mission, but he never, ever forgot individuals. And that always struck me. So because however busy he was, and I, as I said, I, I did shorthand typing for him as well as a couple of other people, and he would call me up and um, dictate a long letter to a member, for example, who had certain issues or certain questions that they had, and he would do it with such thoughtfulness and such patience that I, it always amazed me how he always took time for everybody. Um, and I think it's true, isn't it, that if you need something done, you go to the busiest person you know. So, Gary, have you, is there anything you'd like to add to that? His, his tremendous compassion well, for everybody. It um, may not be... Um, to me, it was important. That's the only way that, that, that I can view it and hope that uh, the, the experience other people can find beneficial and, and see another side of our master as well. There's a couple of things, uh, two or three things, really, if I can do that, Chrissy. Um, one of them, when I was in Lake Powell <clears throat> during some Operation Sunbeam phases with the master, I think it was the end of October, early November, I don't know the year. Uh, while I was there, I was informed that someone had broken into our apartment um, and in Hollywood there and was probably disturbed. And the only thing they took was a new Sony Betamax um, video recorder, you know, the, the old thing where you used to watch the tapes and record them on TV, off of TV. Um, um, but... I didn't think anything more about it, and I really never gave details to the master uh, about that, just that some uh, video equipment was stolen. It was a recorder machine. It wasn't like a, a video camera or anything. But it was interesting. At Christmas, a uh, number of months later, I received a gift from the master. It was a big box, and in the box, uh, he gave it to me and stood by the side as I opened it, and it was a brand new Sony Betamax, Sony Betamax, the same model that was stolen during the mission, uh, and he added a couple of blank recording tapes, and I thanked him profusely, and he just looked and uh, smiled and uh, walked away. Uh, another time, my mother was sick. I got it before my mother was ill, and so I put a photo of her on top of a bowl of sand, which I had taken un from under some Operation Sunbeam equipment at the conclusion of the phase in Lake Powell. It was highly charged sand. I added color light. I charged it with mantra. And I didn't dream of mentioning this problem, I felt, or this circumstance to the master. I wanted to stand on my own two feet. But somehow he found out. He called me over to his office and was terribly hurt, terribly upset. He didn't, didn't shout or, or anything else. He wasn't angry, but just hurt and upset that I did not go to him and ask for his help with my mother. He was just terribly, terribly disappointed, which seeing him that way, was hurt me tremendously. It made me feel uh, how inadequate and that I needed at times to move out of my my own space, my own box that I may have put myself in 
and to view things from a different perspective. And if I had done that and trusted the master uh, in the way that I should have, I, I would have made it a point to go to him. But he, uh, as we know, that he did try, he was a, send a lot of absent healing to people. It's at times he would pick the right cosmic time, whether it was the day or night, to send his healing to the most effective way possible. Our master was so very thoughtful, as you say. Um, he, he also had this great compassion for, every, for all life, but also um, for animals, for all living things. And I remember you told me, Gary, a lovely little story in Lake Powell. I wonder if you'd like to share that. Yeah. Um, as we know, the master loved animals. Um, and even when he was young and uh, working with uh, farm animals and different kinds of animals, he's a dog owner. Um, Sandy was his, uh, I think, a Hungarian Vishla. And then he had uh, another dog, uh, which he... Uh, named Chrissy, and he would remind Chrissy that uh, it was not named after her. Uh, (laughs) But he loved that, that that he had to say that to Chrissy jokingly. Uh, Even as Chrissy mentioned, he did the blessing of the animals twice. Um, But it was Lake Powell again. And those people have been to Lake Powell, certainly on the beach, uh, on the lake, near the psychic center. Um, At that time, we had um, his boat, uh, Pharisees, uh, we had a runabout and uh, a houseboat. And the rest, and most of the people, the crew was on intense on the beach, uh, further up the beach. And it was fairly steep walk from the houseboat up to the area where the tents were. Uh, I was walking around and the master walked out of the houseboat and he was trudging up this steepish slope, and you know what it's like in sand. It can be, it can be difficult. And he was walking up slowly, uh, this slope of sand, with a cup in his hand, a cup of water. And he had noticed a very small, fragile plant hmm. in the middle of a sea of shifting sand, uh, which was trying to push its way upwards to survive in the sand and the wind and the hot sun. And the master walked up the steep slope, got over to to this little tiny plant, a couple shoots sort of sticking upwards, heavenward. And he bent over and very gently poured, gently poured the water over the plant. He stood up straight, looked down at the plant for a few moments, and then walked by back to the boat. And I took that, and that reminded me that the same thing, the same uh, thing he showed to this plant, he took the same approach with members of humanity as a whole, and looking after, protecting, helping, uplifting, healing, and watering our spirit with his demonstrated love. That's a lovely story. Thank you, Gary. I know you've covered many different sides of our master, but 
people that you know know him, the members, uh, they also realize there's many other sides too, because apart from his compassion, his generosity and his love and his sensitivity and his thoughtfulness, of course he was, we never forget, we know, a spiritual warrior um, in the highest sense of the word, great addict. Um, he also was a person who loved to have fun. He was so witty. People know from his lectures and his addresses how witty he was and how humorous he was. He loved to make people laugh. So, Gary, is there anything you'd like to say about these aspects of our master? We are okay for time. Okay. Um, the master created something that he coined King Fu. And uh, it appeared, I think, in the uh, newsletter of Cosmic Voice, maybe around 1977 when he mentioned it and say it was not yet revealed, not revealed to the general public. We have to remember that when the master was young, he was very good using a quarterstaff, which uh, used in traditional fighting techniques. He also was very good uh, using a saber as a fencer. He was taught boxing by his father. And I have to say something about that. At times, the master would playfully wrestle with myself and probably others. And he had this, like, you know, like, what do you do? You know, he's a master. But he expected you to, it, it only lasted a few, you know, relatively short time, but he found the sort of a great pleasure with it. But it had these long arms and they, you know, it's like, anyway, it was just amazing. It was, it was fun. It was fun for him. It was fun for everybody. Later, he became an expert in astral projection. We know that. Psychic self-defense, protecting people from interfering forces. And at times, he did like to occasionally bring up Bruce Lee, the martial artist. And what he really liked about Bruce Lee was his intense focus, martial art focus, and his training, how devoted he was to the training. And the master liked to comment at times that he wished uh, that the, uh, the staff uh, had that same kind of intensity to, to their training. Uh, he also mentioned about a Japanese master uh, who's able to stop opponents uh, without ever touching them from a distance. Um, so he devised his own self-defense or combat technique, however he described it as King Fu, you know, possibly an esoteric homage to a much higher level of the traditional martial arts, uh, but taking it far beyond the physical. And it's my understanding that Dr. King never taught this system uh, to anyone fully. And he never really, I don't, I was never taught anything about it. But at one time he just did a, a short demonstration just to show us the possibilities. And I don't think it was as a ooh-ah thing, uh, but as a teaching thing, as an inspirational thing. And he was in his bungalow, I believe it was, and there were three, two or three of us, I can't quite remember, were in a different parts of the parking lot, and he uh, projected in some way um, his energy. And... Uh, as far as I was concerned, it weakened my strength, my energy level, and also sort of affected my balance. Uh, he then remotely balanced us again, and uh, it was sort of a healing then, and I felt tremendously better. But the the, the uh, my belief is that the master often did things for more than one obvious reason, and it would depend on the person and how much they maybe thought about the experience on how it manifested within them. 
with King Fu. Possibly, this is my speculation, Dr. King placed a thought, a seed within us that could possibly blossom in a certain direction in a future life. Uh, for short term, as a catalyst, uh, was, I believe it was a catalyst for my later interest in the internal martial arts, Qigong, uh, Chinese energetics, and different things like that. So um, that's it. Fascinating. Thank you. I did mention that um, I can't close this without um, talking about our master's sense of humor. I did mention that. And you know, Gary, he used to have quite regular impromptu parties, did he not, in, certainly in London and also Los Angeles, that were so much fun. And uh, he was just so balanced. Would you agree, Gary? Absolutely. It's, it's that sort of one thing I noticed right off the bat, certainly even when I first met him in Detroit. You know, he, he'd go to the boat on Saturdays, Rich Quesada and I'd get there early and he'd come with Ellie later and just to see him relaxing and enjoying himself, uh, getting away from things for a couple hours, the numerous parties you talked about. Uh, he had something he called Club Discotect, uh, uh, where we put a dance uh, floor down in his uh, front of his bungalow, and he assumed the role of the of the maitre d with a fake mustache of this super uh, highfalutin club. And uh, uh, then he later and he made an elixir of uh, alcoholic tinctures that uh, he kept secret, uh, which is available to people. So the number of different things. Of course, we know the Supersonics and, and the band, uh, something called Twistling, which um, you might be glad you missed this, but it was taking, when I first got there, it was uh, wrapping a uh, set length of string around the uh, end of a spoon, and then you wrapped it around a pencil, and you twizzled or brought the spoon back to the finish line. So that seemingly benign operation was highly intensive. And uh, the master <laughs> would often uh, throw bets on people. And it was, it was just amazing. Uh, something similar to that called twizzling. The master got really, really involved with it. One thing I want to bring up, which we had an international dark competition one Christmas time. And um, the third bungalow was set up like an English pub with some English pub food, uh, which I can't really quantify as I think it may have been some pickled onions. I don't remember the rest. Um, it was the USA versus the UK. And it was the master. This is the only time I saw him engage in a dart competition, even though he had a, uh, dartboard up in the garage that guys used to and some of the women used to mess around with in free time but it was this was set up in the third bungalow and it was the master um michael scully and ray nielsen uh versus myself uh richard casada and l young and you got to remember this that the english crew besides the master i believe had their own darts. You know, they were that kind of skill set. And we were sort of, you know, rough and ready Americans, and we weren't that good. Uh, Al Young, when he was practicing, he used to wind up, throw his hands back, and throw the dart about 100 miles an hour towards the dartboard. So we didn't hold much hope out uh, for beating him. But the, um, the Americans uh, did prevail over... Uh, uh, the master and uh, his team uh, in the International Olympian Dart Competition. And um, I have to say that's a 
last time it happened. <laughs> I think there needs to be a follow-up of the uh, UK and the US and dark teams, definitely. I'll be in that one. So anyway, Gary, I think we're running out of time here. I know you wanted to uh, close the show by reading a poem that you wrote about our masters. So um, perhaps you kindly do that. Yeah, thank you, Chrissy. It's it's, uh, it's the only thing, only poem I ever wrote. I wrote it in 1975, uh, and it appeared in a newsletter in 1977. The masters seemed to like it. But um, let me take a sip of water here. I'm getting a bit raspy. I entitled it The Light in My Life With eyes that had not seen With ears that would not hear With a heart that knew not love I walked alone Wandering in silence Pushed and pulled By the winds of change On the carousel of life Watching at the endless train of nothingness continued to pass me by, searching for that purpose deep within my soul, lost somewhere in the sands of time. Into this darkness, a light appeared, a light of might, a light of love, a light which came from high above, this light of God so strong and kind. He's the master I've longed to find. His love now warms a heart once cold than a treasure greater than gold. His light has shone and now I see his side is where I long to be. Oh God, oh God, what can I do but send my love and thanks to you for allowing me to know this one and help him in some way in the work he's done. Though life will take us far away, together is where we'll always stay. For into time, you'll always be a special, loving, everlasting part of me. Thank you, Gary. That's very lovely. And I was just, well, I'm wrapping up the show now. Thank you so much, Gary. And um, I just want to say that if you haven't yet read uh, the Master's biography, uh, and this has kind of stimulated you, this show, to want to know more about Dr. King, his background and growing up, then I urge you to read uh, The King Who Came to Earth by Richard Lawrence and Brian Kniep this uh, excellent biography where you can find out even more information and details and people's experiences and so forth over his mission, our master's mission. Thank you so much. And uh, over to Noemi for the close. Thank you. Thank you, Chrissy. Thank you, Noemi. Well, thank you very much to you both. What a fantastic show that was. And I must say, I haven't heard any of those stories before. And what a beautiful poem that was, Gary. Thank you very much to you both. And, uh, of you. course, you can find out more about the uh, facts publications mentioned in the show. Um, please visit our web website, aetherius.org, and you can connect with your host, Chrissy Blaze, through her website, astrologycity.com, and with Gary through aetherius.org. 
And the next Sirius Radio Live show will be on February the 15th, hosted by Richard Lawrence and his guest, Brian Kniep, and they'll be discussing a Sirius Society membership, the opportunity of our lives. We do hope you enjoyed the show, and thank you for listening. <laughs>